If you've got your Bibles, go ahead and turn with me to the book of Revelation chapter 2. Revelation chapter 2. In my study in the book of Revelation this week, um, I discovered something that was interesting that I had read before, that I had heard before, but again it came up as I was studying, and that is that the book of Revelation, out of all of the books in the New Testament, has more allusions or references to the Old Testament than any other book of the New Testament. Now, most of us think of Revelation as a forward-thinking book, right? Of a prophetic book of what is to come. And it does tell us those events that are going to unfold. We may not fully understand it or halfway understand it or understand it at all, but it's there. But it's also a backwards-looking book in that it references, alludes to, the Old Testament more than any other book in the New Testament. And I just thought we'd do something kind of fun today to start. We have um, people that are joining us for the month of July. Our first through fifth graders are in service with us for the month of July. If you're a first through fifth grader, raise your hand. Let me see it. There we go. Good to see y'all. Glad you're here. Welcome to uh, big church for the month, right? We're excited about that. And so here's what I thought. There are so many Old Testament references in the book of Revelation, I thought it'd be fun just for a moment. We've been in the New Testament a lot during the first half of this year and um, the preaching moment in Philippians and talking about the mission of God and talking about um, what happened with Jesus and, and encountering people with doubt. And so I thought it'd be fun to let's just think for a moment about some Old Testament. All right. And so I'm going to ask and I want to ask my first through fifth graders that are here okay, to tell me your favorite Old Testament story. So. Um, just shout it out. We're not going to do like the thing. What's first through fifth graders? What's your favorite Old Testament story? So creation. That's a pretty good place to start. All right. That's a good one. All right. Somebody else. Good. Somebody else. All right. Anybody. All right. Non first through fifth graders trying to. Jonah. Here's some Jonah back there. I don't know if you saw recently there was a guy that got swallowed by a whale. Um, I saw that. May, what'd you say? Maybe. Maybe, yeah. We know Jonah did. We don't know about the guy up on the East Coast or wherever that was, alright? So, another, somebody else. Favorite Old Testament story? Elijah. Elijah. Got that? Alright, somebody over in this area. I heard like Davioli. I think that's David and Daniel together. I don't think that's an Italian dish to serve. So David is a good one. Daniel. So let's think about Daniel for a minute, all right? Why is Daniel such a popular story? Well, there's all kinds of things that happens to Daniel, right? I mean, there's the lion's den. People are eating Daniel's diet these days to get healthier and lose weight, which was not the point of the diet in the first place, but it's there, right? The reason we love Daniel is because In a place where compromise would have been very easy, he didn't. Daniel and his friends stood firm. What's interesting about that is we know Daniel and we know three of his friends' names because they stood firm. What we don't know are the hundreds or thousands of other Israelites that were taken to captivity That did not stand firm. Because they didn't stand firm. 
They compromised. They began to follow the traditions. The goal of the Babylonians at that time was to take all of these young men from Israel captive and turn them into Babylonians so that they would wipe away their entire culture. And Daniel and his friends, for the duration of Daniel's life at least, stood firm. Now the reason that Daniel in particular relates to the church that we're going to talk about today is because in Revelation chapter 2, we are starting in chapter 12, the middle section of the letters. And they really are kind of built into sections. And so the first and the last letter, letter 1 and letter 7, have correlation in themselves. In fact, they're similar to some of the things that are in them. Letter 2 and letter 6 are the same way. And then 3, 4, and 5 almost form a unit in the middle. And Jim Hamilton, who is a, um, a writer and a scholar, has noticed that if you look at those three together, 3, 4, and 5, so you look at Pergamum, Thyatira, and Sardis, that you have a progression that happens from the first one we'll talk about today through the other two. And what you have in Pergamum that we'll talk a little more detail about today is a beginning to compromise with false teaching that is infiltrating the church. And as that false teaching begins to infiltrate the church, what you have in Thyatira is that false teaching that is there has infiltrated the church and it leads to immorality and idolatry among the people. And when you get the Sardis, that false teaching and that compromise that started in Pergamum, that spread in Thyatira, has grown full force in Sardis and Sardis is a dead church. And you see this progression of a little bit of compromise that leads to a walking away from not only the teachings of Scripture, but also the actions that we're called to live as followers of Christ that eventually leads to a church that is on life support or death. Jim Hamilton points out that if we as churches could recognize the first step and correct it there, we would save ourselves a lot of trouble that comes from steps two and steps three. So we start in chapter two, verse 12, with the letter to Pergamum. And here's what I will tell you about this. This follows the formula that the others did. A description of Jesus, a commendation for the church, a warning for the church, and then a solution for the church. Now, last week we talked about the fact that Smyrna did not have anything negative really there. Well, these three churches in the middle do. And we're just going to walk today. I really don't have any points to the sermon. Like, I'm not going to put any big points on the screen. Now, some of you think, ooh, that's awesome. And some of you are like, uh-oh, that may not be good, right? What I've come to understand is these are sermons in and of themselves that Jesus is preaching. Now, he preaches this one in about, if you read it all through, about two minutes. And it's an amazingly effective sermon. If I could do that, I would. Some of you said you don't know how effective that would be if you could do that. Right? But here's what he says, starting in verse 12. Writes. To the angel of the church in Pergamum. Thus says the one who has the sharp double-edged sword. 
So each time Jesus begins, he begins by giving a description of himself that relates to chapter 1. In chapter 1, he gave this full depiction of himself, and then each church gets a specific disclaimer about the, who Jesus is for their moment in time, for their situation. And so when we see this description to the people in Pergamum, we have to ask the question, what is the relationship between this description and them? The sword was a symbol of Roman justice. In chapter 1, we have this picture of the sword coming. Where is it coming from in chapter 1? It's coming from Jesus' mouth, right? That the word of the Lord is this judgment that can come upon us. Now, the reason that's particularly important for the people of Pergamum is that that has been described in ancient times as the most distinguished city in Asia. It was a place of religious importance. There was a big hill at the top of it that a citadel stood where there were sacred and royal buildings. There were temples to the Roman emperors, but there were also temples to the Greek including a temple mythology to know that Zener of this entire area. So the governor of all seven of these churches would have lived in Pergamum. It was the center of power. And he used, this particular ruler, used as his symbol of power a sword to show that he had the ability, if anyone disagreed or went against him, that he could end their life by the sword. He could bring judgment upon them as the head of the government. And so when Jesus is speaking to the people of Pergamum, in some ways we talked about last week that they were being put close to death in Smyrna. They were under persecution and Jesus is like, I am the one who has died and come to life. He says, even if I die, then I came back to life. Even if you're killed, you can find life in me. To this group, he says, you need to understand where true authority lies. While the Roman government may say that they wield the sword, I am the one that wields the double-edged, real sword of judgment. Now, as we get into this, we're going to talk a little bit about their compromise and what was happening in their church. But the basic understanding Jesus is telling to them is this. You would be wise... To think about the judgment that I bring over the judgment that a human authority can bring. Like the pro-council, the governor of this area could bring judgment, but it is nothing compared to what I can do. Another way to say that is Jesus is greater. Sometimes we want to add than on the end of that and put other things behind it. But the reality is the statement is simple and clear enough. Jesus is greater. The book of Hebrews goes about laying that out, that Jesus is greater than Moses, Abraham, the angels, the hall of faith. They are all faithful, but Jesus is greater. Even to some kind of obscure Genesis reference of Melchizedek as priest, Jesus is greater. He is higher. He is better. He is more. And Jesus is declaring to them in this moment, you know that difficult times are coming. You know that the people around you are going to try to get you to compromise in ways that would undermine your authority to share the gospel of Jesus Christ, to share the gospel about me. And what you need to understand is you need to fear the authority and the judgment that I can bring more than you fear the judgment that the authorities can bring. 
Another way to say that that's, that's less judgmental, there's lots of judging in that, right? Is to whom do we owe our allegiance? Are you more concerned about your allegiance to the governor of this realm? Or are you more concerned about your allegiance to the Lord of the universe? And Jesus is just reminding him of this before he comes with the idea about compromise. Now, how do I know that that's what's kind of intention there? It's because he tells them that if they choose the wrong thing, and we're going to jump to the end. We're not going to, we'll get there in a minute. And I'll give a little more description when we get there. At the end, he says, if you don't repent, if you don't stop what's happening, I'm going to come against you with my sword. And again, we've said this before, I cannot imagine a less enviable position to be in in anyone's life than to be at war with God. And so Jesus introduces himself and says, write to the angel of the church in Pergamon. Tell the pastor in Pergamon to tell his people this, that this is the one who is saying this. Thus says the Lord. Thus says the one who has and brings greater judgment than anyone on earth can possibly bring. And here's what I love about that. Jesus says that that comes not from the actual physical sword that can kill, but from the word of God that is more powerful than we can imagine. We must remember, as was described, earlier is the favorite Old Testament story, creation. Creation happened when God spoke. He said, let there be light, and there was light. And so the powerful word of judgment of the Lord is greater than anything we can imagine. And then he goes to the compliment. So that's who he is. The one that holds all, sovereign over all, judge over all, ruler over all. And then he says, this I know. Now we talked about this last week. The word know there means like an intimate experiential knowledge. Something that happens there. One of the families in our church, when I did the salmon croquette story last week, made salmon croquettes for dinner that night to experience it. I asked them today if there was anything they wanted me to mention in the sermon today for their family to cook tonight. And just ribeye steaks came out. And so has no point with anything else but ribeye steaks. There it is. He says, I know. And he gives three things he knows about them. He knows where they live. He knows their faithful witness. And he knows their endurance under persecution. By the way, that's all really good stuff. Well, not the where you live part, but the where you live part informs the other two. He says, I know where you live, where Satan's throne is. Now, there is a lot of discussion about that. When I looked it up in four different places, they gave eight different ideas. And I thought we would spend 20 minutes on each idea today. No, we're not. All right. There's some that think it's the physical nature because what I mentioned was up on a hill and it looked like a throne that they were saying where all those temples were was like that's where Satan was. There are some that say that it was because of those temples and because of those shrines and because of those idols. In fact, there were two idols in particular, two shrines in particular. We've already mentioned Zeus, but there was another one that was Askleopos whose symbol was a serpent and would be tied to Satan that was being worshipped there in that city. But most people think that neither of those are the answer. They think the ultimate answer is that this was a center for the group of people that worshipped the current emperor of Rome as God. And as such, anybody that defied that, like Daniel in his book who defied the worship 
of Nebuchadnezzar, anyone who defied the worship of Domitian as God was seen as somebody that needed to be dealt with by the sword of the Roman government. It was the white hot center of the action of persecution. And as such, it was the place where Satan was operating in a real way. Tangible, physical, visible way. And he says that even though you live there, at the very center of persecution, at the worst place, I can't imagine a worse place to live than Satan's throne, you are holding on to my name and did not deny your faith. The word holding on there literally means to grasp forcibly, to remain faithful, to hold on for dear life. To white knuckle it. A few weeks ago, our family had the opportunity to go on vacation to Disney World and Universal Studios. We hadn't gone anywhere big like that in uh, almost a couple of years because, you know, there was this whole global pandemic thing. We went and had a great time. And on the last kind of big day of our trip, we went to Universal Studios and they were testing out a new roller coaster. Um, It's called the Velocicoaster. And... Uh, nobody in my family wanted to test out the new uh, high-speed roller coaster except for me. Now, I know when you look at me, you think daredevil. I know that's what you immediately think. But that's, I wanted to test it out. I wanted to go. And so I got in the single rider line. My my wife and girls went to a water, you know, one of those log water rides. And my boys walked around a little bit. And I rode Velocicoaster. Now, just to give you a little experience of what I did, we actually have a point of view video that'll play while I kind of talk about it. Um, And it is one of the fastest, highest coasters in the world. All right. Now, here's what they don't tell you when you're in line for the Velocicoaster is that it not only has all new ride systems, it has a new harness system. And so while you're doing all of these flips, what you have to understand is I was used to these kind of rides where they have the shoulder harness that comes down. Some of you already think I'm crazy. You don't need to hear the rest of this, but they have the shoulder harness that comes down and locks into place over your chest so you don't move. I read an interview, by the way, right here you go to 70 miles an hour and then 155 feet in the air straight up and down. So that's exciting. Um, And what they have is a new type of harness that comes down over your head, but does not do anything on your chest. And it's just a lap belt. And I read the guy that developed this and did this. um, There's a nice little barrel roll over the water there. That did this said that what he wanted people to experience during the ride. Now some of you can focus back here. What he wanted you to experience during the ride was that your rear end came off of your seat. And there are rides that already do that, but you have a shoulder harness over you. And that your back came off of the seat at the same time. I did not read or know any of that before I got on the ride. And I was in the very back of the roller coaster, like the last row. And there was a guy sitting next to me that rode it six times that day. And when we got off, he was trying to walk me through on the front end. It's awesome. It's great. We got off. He said, wow, I've ridden everywhere but the back. The back is the most intense times two. I was like, glad I got to experience that day one, right? 
But here's what happened on that ride. When we hit that first upside down and I felt my rear end come off the seat and my back come off the seat, do you know what I did with my hands? I grabbed on for dear life. Right on that lap belt were two handles. And I white knuckled that thing the rest of the trip. Right? Because I felt like I... now. You know, in your mind, you're playing those games. They would not let people ride this if it weren't safe. I've seen multiple people on it. No one has fallen out yet. Like you're doing all that. But emotionally, it's like, I don't care about any of that. I'm holding on to this thing. And I felt like I was in a rodeo riding a bull. Full up in the air, grabbed on and holding tightly. If I could have used a Greek word at that moment, it's the word that they use here of the, what the people in Pergamum are doing to the name of Jesus. They are on the ride of their life through persecution and they are holding on for dear life. Like there is no other option. Now here's what's interesting about that. In chapter 2 verse 1, If you remember this from a couple of weeks ago, it says that Jesus is holding on to the stars. It's the exact same word for the way Jesus is holding the pastors, the stars of the church, to the way the people in the church are holding on to Jesus. And it's to his name, his character, who he is, the essence of him. To the point That when it got really difficult around them, they had not yet come to deny him in the face of the persecution, even when one of their own, Antipas, we don't know anything about him. There's some legendary stuff later that was written much later that most people don't think is true about how he died, but we know he died. So we know that persecution here, remember last week he was saying to the people in Smyrna, be willing to give up your life for the gospel. Here they already had. Antipas had given his life and he says, even in that moment, you did not shy away. So he says, I know where you live, how faithful you've been, even as one of your own has died. And then comes the but. But I have this against you. You have some things, some there who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to place a stumbling block in front of the Israelites to eat meat, sacrifice to idols, and to commit sexual immorality. In the same way, you also have those who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Now, there's a lot to unpack here. And just to be honest, there's a lot of kind of mystery around what's going on here. The teaching of Balaam and the Nicolaitans and all of that are not terms that we find in a lot of other places. But we can find evidence of what's going on in this church by the story of Balaam. Now, those of you, and this this is a deep cut, a deep track in Old Testament. But for some of you, you, you'll know this. When I say Balaam, what do you most likely think of? A donkey, right? Why do we think of a donkey with Balaam? Because the donkey talked. That's not normal, all right? I don't know if you knew that or not. And so that's how we think of Balaam. But when we think of the story of Balaam, it's much bigger than that. He was a Gentile prophet 
called on by the king of Moab, Israel's enemy, to curse the Israelites. And he did not curse the Israelites. Instead, this is what he did. And this is interesting when you think about this church. So Jesus says to this church at Pergamon, you're doing a great job. The full-on frontal assault you're getting from the outside, you are doing a great job. A great job of thwarting that, of keeping that at bay, of stopping that. He says, but... There are people within that are starting to cause issues. What are the issues? Well, Balaam did not call curses upon the Israelites. Instead, he called blessings. But while he did that, he also showed the Moabite Midianite women how to beguile the Israelites. That's a good old word there, right? Beguile. What does beguile mean? To win over. Seduce. Cause them to fall in love with. And what happened is when the Israelite men fell in love with the Midianite women, they began to follow the Midianite women's gods and festivals and let all of that start to come in. And it was getting ready to destroy the Israelites from within. And he says to the church at Pergamum, you've got some people that are trying to convince you that it's okay to do certain things and that you're going down a path that if you're not careful, it will arise from within you. And while you are doing a great job of thwarting the outward attacks of persecution, you must be aware that within your own ranks there may be those rising up that are coming to destroy you. So what was that? Well, as best we can tell, there were some around that time that were beginning to convince Christians that because of their freedom, that they could participate in things that were assigned to the imperial cult, the emperor worship of Caesar, out of civic duty, because it didn't have any spiritual nature to them anyways. They began to rationalize their participation in the civic, in the empire things that were going on around them by saying, well, we really don't believe that stuff anyways. We're just doing it to be good citizens. And it's not impacting our spiritual lives. Now, I think what's happening here can be applied to all kinds of compromise. I think it's compromise with our culture. I think it's compromise with our nation, our compromise with world order, compromise with anything outside of Christ. But for this particular church, I believe what is happening here is that they were allowing themselves to rationalize things that God had said were not okay to do. Because they counted it as their civic duty. They began to take pieces of their empire and pieces of the kingdom and kind of meld them together until there was something that was a mixture of them that looked like neither of them separately. We live in a world where syncretism, taking different belief systems and homogenizing it into something that fits for us, is more prevalent than it may have ever been. 
Take a little bit of my Christian faith and upbringing with a little bit of the cultural understanding of this particular issue with a little bit of karma that's out there and a little bit of Eastern religion and a little bit of this. And we'll just kind of mesh it all together into my worldview that is part something and not whole anything. Even within the church, we allow things to move into our lives and through our lives so that we begin to, if we're not careful, see teachings and things that are not in alliance or accordance with the Bible that begin to be a part of what we're teaching and saying and doing or is motivating us in how we use our Bible. In the book of Galatians chapter 5, it tells us that we have been set free. And that is true, that from the sins of the world, we have been set free. From our sins, we have been set free. But it says, then, don't use that freedom to indulge the flesh and do things that are counter to what God would intend. The issue for us is compromise and syncretism in an attempt to fit into a society that is already opposed to you. And if so, you're trying to blend a little bit of some group's ideology into your Christianity in order to fit better into that group over and above the kingdom of God, then you are making a mistake. Or, to be more forceful, you're committing sin. And if at any point we sing about Jesus being the center, and that's a, an emotional plea, emotional idea that, yes, that's what we want. That's how we want to live. That's what we want for our church, for our lives, for our companies, for our people, for our fam- for all that is around us. We want Jesus to be the center. But the reality is when we put anything in our lives, any affiliation, we put any membership, we put any idea above the kingdom of God, then we are committing the sin that is happening inside the church of Pergamum. And so if our allegiance to any particular political party becomes more important than our allegiance to the kingdom of God, we have sinned. If our allegiance to any particular social issue oversteps our allegiance to the kingdom of God, we have sinned. If our allegiance to any career oversteps our allegiance to the kingdom of God, we have sinned. If our allegiance to our family oversteps the kingdom of God, we have sinned. If our allegiance to our own desires, our wants, our personal truth steps over our allegiance to the kingdom of God, we have sinned. And yes, on the 4th of July, if our allegiance to our political country oversteps our allegiance to the kingdom of God, we have sinned. Pergamum was doing a great job defending against the persecution that was coming from the outside. But he says, be careful because those that are within are trying to get you to compromise in this area. And he says, verse 16, repent. It's the answer for all of this. Repent. Turn around mentally, action-wise, and all of it. Repent. Otherwise, he said, this is what I talked about earlier, I will come to you quickly. I don't know what quickly is with God, but it's quicklier than it would be for me. I don't think quicklier is a word, but it's there. I will come quickly 
and I will fight against them with the sword of my mouth, with the judgment that that comes. And then verse 17 he says, but if you correct this, if you get this right, this is what the Spirit says to the churches. By the way, I think this is always interesting in all of these. He says, let anyone who has a hear listen to what the Spirit says, not to Pergamum, not to this church, but to the churches. I think that that's an allusion to the fact that it's for churches of all time. To the one who conquers, to the one that figures this out, to the one that puts Jesus at the center, to the one who focuses completely on him and his kingdom. And that is what drives us. I will give some of the hidden manna and I will also give a white stone on the stone, a new name and subscribe that no one knows except the one who receives it. There's a whole sermon in that reward. But I'll tell you what those two things I think mean. Again, this is one of those things that has like eight things listed. Here's what I think it means. First of all, there was this tradition in the Jewish life that there was hidden manna that was still in the ark and the ark was hidden and that when Jesus comes again or in Revelation terms, but in Jewish terms, when the Messiah would come and set everything right, that they would find the ark and that there would be hidden manna that God would use in the ever after in the long term to feed people on a daily basis without any work. The idea is that God is going to put us in a place where we will be completely provided everything we absolutely need without the labors of work being hard to get it. One of my one of the reasons I love Fourth of July, I do love this holiday, and I love all, all that it represents. One of the things I do love about it is the food. Really, I say about any holiday. I just like food. All right, but I love barbecue. My family, we do barbecue bologna, smoked bologna. But here's the thing I don't like about all that is that it takes a long time, right? You gotta prep stuff, you gotta cook stuff, you gotta slow cook it. It's a process and all of that. You gotta pay for the meat, you gotta work through all that to get the pay to do it. And then I look forward to a day, and I don't know if heavenly manna is smoked bologna. But it could be. You can't prove it's not. Right? When it's just there. You imagine waking up every morning. Some of you think, I would not want smoked bologna every morning. That's your fault. It would be great, right? But the idea is that we're going to be in a place where everything is provided for us. And then there's this little thing. A white stone, by the way, in their day, when judgments were given, they were sometimes given by stones. And a black stone meant guilty and a white stone meant not guilty. And on that new stone, on that stone is a new name that no one knows except the one who receives it. There is this understanding that when we get to heaven, I don't know what, you know, I don't know in heaven if I'll be called Lyle or what I'll be called, but I know that there will be a name that is between me and my Savior that describes the character of who I am because he knows me. The point of this letter to Pergamon is to watch out for those moments of compromise in your life in your family, and in your church. And repent when you find them. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we are grateful that you are a God who loves us, who cares for us, 
who cares enough, Lord, to point out the things in our lives that need to be corrected or fixed, repaired. And Lord, that you don't leave us in that moment, that you are a God who is able to give us the strength and the power and that, God, you're able to fix and repair and cleanse. And so, Lord, we pray that today that you would show us those areas of our lives personally, of our lives as families, as our lives in our career, of our lives as a church, when we have allowed internal compromise to begin to lead us in a direction that is contrary to your will, that's contrary to the advancement of your kingdom. Lord, I pray that you would just reveal that to us today. And Lord, you give us the ability to do what you've called us to do. Lord, if there are those that need to make decisions, that need to respond in a public way, Lord, that you would give them an understanding of what that means. And Lord, give them the courage to do it. In Jesus' name I pray.